Welcome everyone. Today we are live again with another live stream and today I am with Timothy McCabe. Tim is a presuppositional apologist and today he runs the website presuppositions.org. He's a great Christian man. He works a lot in different areas of apologetics. So I just want to thank you so much for doing this today, Tim. Thanks, Zach. Thanks for uh, inviting me to uh, to be on your YouTube channel. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course, man. Anytime. So my first question, I guess we'll just kind of get started maybe with like a little bit of a testimony. Like maybe talk a little bit about your early life and like maybe like when you came to Christ, if that was whenever that was, like things like that. Okay. Yeah. I was raised in a church going home and uh, I was basically, I was a good person. Uh, and when I say that, what I mean is that most people would look at me as a kid and they would say, oh, you know, he's a good kid. Uh, I got good grades. I did what my parents told me to. Um, I didn't cuss, smoke, drink, any of that kind of stuff. Um, and when I grew up then and moved out, uh, that just kind of continued. Um, I continued to obey the law and I continued to you know, work and try to earn my own keep rather than living off some other per people or whatever. Uh, and so I, I, from outward appearances, I, I looked like a good Christian person. And I, I believed all of the right stuff in terms of having mental assent. Um, I recognized that God existed and I recognized that Jesus was uh, his son in some sense and that he died for our sins in some sense. So I had mental assent to a lot of Christian facts and I had really good behavior. But the truth of my heart is that I really only cared about myself. And I, I, the reason that I behaved well is because I wanted people to have a good opinion of me. Um, it wasn't because I love Jesus. And I believe these things because I thought they were true, not because they really mattered to my life. Um, so anyway, eventually I got involved with this girl. And uh, when I found out that she was pregnant and we were not married, um, I was absolutely overwhelmed with guilt because again, I had the right beliefs. I knew that that was wrong. <laughs> I knew that we were in a situation we should not have been in and that it was my fault. And uh, the problem was is that in spite of the fact that I, that I had a lot of the right beliefs, I just really had no idea what to do with my guilt, with my sin. So one day I met a pastor and uh, we were talking and he asked me if I knew whether or not I was going to heaven. And I kind of you know, jumped around a little bit and, and acted like I knew and uh, also indicated that I wasn't really sure. And in the end, basically I had no idea. <laughs> And he, he caught on to that and he was like, so, so you just don't have any idea whether you're going to heaven or not. And I was like, well, does, does anybody really know? And he said, well, did you know that the Bible says that you can know? And I was like, really? I'd, I'd read the Bible and I grew up in church and I figured if the Bible said that you can know that you're going to heaven, I, I would know that, wouldn't I? Uh, anyway, he pointed me to 1 John 5, 13, which reads, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And I looked at that and I didn't remember ever reading that before. And I considered it and I looked at the context and I mean, the pastor left and I thought more about it. And, and I realized after trying to understand exactly what John was saying, and, and it wasn't all that hard to understand what he was saying, uh, how a person could know whether or not they were saved, whether or not they had eternal life, I still didn't know. <laughs> And the reason that I still didn't know, it, I finally figured out that it was because I had no commitment to Christ. I had no faith in Christ. I had mental ascent. I, had, I believed some of the right facts, but my heart wasn't there. Uh, I hadn't given my life to Christ. And so anyway, at that point in time, I finally 
understood what the difference was. And I was very motivated by a desire for forgiveness and uh, recognizing that my whole life had just been focused on myself. Um, at that point, I gave my life to Christ instead. And I have never been the same since. Yeah, definitely. That's an awesome story of how you came to Christ. So how old were you when you came to Christ? Uh, that was back in 1997, and I was born in 74. Uh, let's see, how old was I? 24. <laughs> 20, yeah, 23-ish, something like that. Somewhere around in there. Okay, awesome, yeah. I didn't intend to just try to get you to expose your age to everyone. But oh, I mean, that's fine. I guess uh, I'm, I'm older than most people think I am. <laughs> so you came to Christ, and obviously now you have this website and you really go into a lot of different things about apologetics. So what got you into apologetics and what led you to starting your website, you know, things like that? Yeah, well, apologetics actually started before I was a Christian. Um, as I said, I, I was raised in a church going home, so I was familiar with, with uh, the idea of God and the Bible and Christianity in general. Um, but I don't really remember any encounters with apologetics that meant a whole lot to me until I was in high school. One day I was in high school and I'm walking down the hall and I see this display on a bulletin board uh, hanging there in the hallway. And uh, I, I take a little bit of time to look at it because you couldn't not look at it. Like this display, it was disgusting. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, um, but they had put up this display. And it was these gigantic posters of dead pigs hanging upside down in a slaughterhouse. It was really sick. And uh, anyway, there was, this, there was a sign there that said, animals are not ours to eat. Now, I didn't like the pictures. I thought they were gross. I, I don't want to go into a slaughterhouse. I'm not a fan of, of, of butchering. Like, that's not my ideal job or anything like that. But the message that animals are not ours to eat, I realized that was wrong. <laughs> they are. <laughs> so anyway, I, I pulled out a pencil, and nobody was looking, and I... I wrote some graffiti on the poster. I said, yes, they are. And then I, I wrote a reference to Genesis there. I actually had to look it up that night to make sure that I wrote up the right reference. But uh, so anyway, I wrote that on the, on the poster and uh, then went on about my, my day. And then the next day I looked at the poster to see if it was still there or if it had been erased or if somebody else had written anything. There was nothing else there. A couple days later, somebody else had written something there underneath what I'd written. Somebody had written you would base your life on a book of fiction. Fiction was in big, bold letters underlined twice. Hmm. And I was like, huh, how do you respond to that? And I realized that I had no idea. <laughs> how, how do you respond to something like that? I mean, I, it's yeah. not just that I didn't know what to say in response to that. I, I didn't even really know how to think about coming up with something to say. Like there was, there was no sort of logical progression in my head about how to respond to that. It was just, it, it was very puzzling to me um, to be, to encounter such a, such a totally different worldview that was so utterly opposed to mine. Like, do you find common ground or like, what do you, what do you do? So I just, I kind of walked away, you know, puzzling about how do I respond to this? And uh, I walked into the library and I sat down in the library and I'm sitting there thinking and I'm thinking and I can't think of anything. And this friend of mine comes into the library, a guy named Brian, and um, he comes over to me. He's like, hey, Tim, what's up? Hey, Brian, uh, and you know, I couldn't, I'm not very good at making stuff up or at, at lying. Uh, so I just happened to tell him exactly what was on my mind that I'd just written this graffiti on the poster. And um, 
so I told him what the response was and you know that I was just kind of trying to come up with a you know a counter response to that and I just had no idea what to said to say and so he grabbed a piece of paper and a pencil and he started writing something out he's scribbling this out and he's writing he's crossing this and he's writing this and writing this and then when he was done he handed it to me and he's like how about something like this and I looked at it and I was like oh wow <laughs> you came up with that I, I was just I was amazed what he said was if there is no God and indeed no higher moral authority, by what mechanism can you claim that animals have rights? And I was like, wow, you know, <laughs> mind blown. that was incredible. So, you know, now I realize that that's basically the, uh, the moral argument for the existence of God. Um, and it doesn't really address the concern of whether or not the Bible is truth or fiction. But nonetheless, it was, it blew my mind. It absolutely blew my mind. And, uh, you know, right there, I basically fell in love with apologetics. I just didn't realize that it was apologetics that I'd fallen in love with. Um, then later on in college, I went to Virginia Tech, uh, which is close to um, where you're going to be going to school. And uh, I heard this this guy speak. I went to this, this speaker. I thought I'd heard of him. I wasn't really sure who he was. And just, you know, some guy, he was speaking. It was something to do. Some guy named Josh McDowell or something like that. And uh, so he was giving this lecture on this, this book that he'd written, some book. It was called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And uh, anyway, I was just blown away by how much evidence there was for the Christian faith. I had no idea that it was so well evidenced, that there was so much historical data backing it up. It really blew my mind. Um, anyway, that was all before I became a Christian. Now, after I became a Christian, uh, a friend of mine told me about a guy named Hank Hanegraaff. Um, this was back before he'd become uh, an Eastern Orthodox uh, believer. He was still a regular Protestant. Um, anyway, he had a radio show, and people would call in and ask him questions. And so I started listening to the show, and uh, I was just, I was really fascinated with it. And I started listening to it like every day. And so after several months of listening to Hank on the radio, I realized that it, it kind of shocked me, but I finally realized that he only had like, I don't know, 30 answers. And every single question fell into one of these 30 different categories, and he would just give the same answer. And, and I, I realized that, you know, of all of the questions that people ask Hank, I could answer them, even ones that I'd never heard before. I'd, I'd hear a brand new question on the radio, and I'd be like, oh, Hank's going to say this. And then he'd say that. And it was really, really cool to, to find out that there are really only so many questions, just in different varieties. Uh, you know, they're, they're kind of flavored differently. I mean, there's so many different ways to present um, the, uh, the, the problem of evil, for example, um, so many different ways to say that. Like you could say, you know, if God really loved us, then my, he wouldn't have had my grandmother die of cancer. Or if God was really powerful, he wouldn't have let the Nazis take over. Those sound like two completely different challenges. They're actually the same challenge, the argument uh, or the, the problem of evil. Um, and so if you can answer the problem of evil, then you can answer both of those. <clears throat> So that was that was kind of eye-opening to me. And I, I realized I could be Hank Hanegraaff. I could answer all of these questions. I know all of his answers. <laughs> I could have my own radio show. This isn't this isn't that hard. Uh, so it was really encouraging to me when I when I realized that I could answer the questions that he was being asked. And uh, anyway, at some point along there, I encountered a guy named William Lane Craig um, and uh, fell in love with his his debates. Uh, he's a phenomenal debater. I'm, I'm sure a lot of the viewers have, have heard of him, maybe even all of them. <laughs> and uh, anyway, it became very clear to me that apologetics was where it was at for me. That was, that was my thing. And uh, so I developed a, a website 
the first website that I developed in this arena is a site called godcontention.org. And uh, what godcontention.org is supposed to be is um, if you have a, a question that you'd like to know the answer to that question from a variety of different worldviews, you just ask it once and like four or five different worldviews all answer the same question. And the reason that I thought that this would be a good idea is because I was trying to find information on Hinduism. Um, I'd been told by some Christians that Hinduism was like this and like that. Uh, but when I was actually trying to figure out if Hinduism was like this and that, I was having trouble finding that kind of information. The Hindus weren't really talking about it in that way because uh, the Christians were comparing Hinduism to Christianity and the Hindus didn't have any reason to do that. They had no interest in comparing Hinduism to Christianity. So finding out the differences was a little tough. I found out a lot of stuff about cows and yoga, but nothing about sanctification or salvation or heaven. And so I thought, boy, it would just be great if somebody could make a website where anybody could ask a question and lots of different worldviews would answer the question. And so anyway, I, I decided I was the somebody who could do that. And so I came up with this God contention website. And uh, I realized that if I was going to have this website, I needed people other than me who can answer questions. Uh, so one of the first people that I contacted was a guy named Richard Carrier. I don't know if, if, if you guys have ever heard of him. He's a, a fairly prominent atheist. And uh, he seemed to think the idea was great. So he started contributing to the God Contention website, and I was contributing to it. And eventually I found a Muslim who'd contribute to it, a guy named Shahid Williams, uh, and a couple of Hindus. Uh, I got them to contribute as well, a couple of articles, unfortunately. There, there were, they didn't contribute a whole lot. But um, mm -hmm. so that website is still around. And anyway, while I was, while I was working on that, I, I discovered a guy named John Frame. Um, and through his writings, he introduced me to Cornelius Van Til. Uh, and Greg Bonson. Now these guys are all in the presuppositional apologetics camp. And uh, as I started to to read their stuff and listen to the, to uh, some of the things that uh, that they said online, Greg Bonson in particular, um, I realized that uh, the presuppositional methodology was really, from my perspective, seemed like it was really sound. Um, and uh, so uh, anyway, that's that's kind of a short version of my journey into apologetics. Yeah, that's a great short journey explanation. It really seems like it's <laughs> you got a lot of mileage. It's some awesome stuff. So I want to transition a little bit into your epistemology. But first, I think that epistemology is a very big word. So you just maybe clarify briefly, what is epistemology? Yeah, it's basically the theory of knowledge. Actually, this is a definition straight from Google. Um, the theory of knowledge especially with regard to its methods, validity, and scope. Epistemology is the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief from opinion. That's what Google says it is. Um, so it, for me, when I deal with epistemology, uh, I focus primarily on the idea of justification. How is a belief justified? And that's not the same thing as whether or not a belief is true. Um, philosophers for generations have defined knowledge as justified true belief. Uh, so knowledge has to has, have these three different things in order for it to be knowledge. Um, and there's three different things because they're different. Uh, truth is one of the things and justification is a completely different one. Um, you can have a belief that's true and not justified and that's generally not considered knowledge. You can have a belief that's justified and not true and that's not considered knowledge. Um, 
So generally speaking, if you want to know something, you're shooting for the justified true beliefs. But um, just uh, I've heard people try to equate the two things, that a belief is justified if it's true. And I, just as an example of a belief that, um, that was totally justified that I had that was false, uh, there was one day when I was driving my car, and um, I was coming up to this curve, a fairly sharp curve, and I, I believed that if I pushed in my brake pedal, my car would slow down. And uh, this belief was justified. It was justified because of several different reasons. I'll, I'll point out three ways that it was justified. It was justified because it was what I was taught by my teachers. Um, my parents taught me that. My brother who helped, helped me learn to drive taught me that. And also my uh, driving instructor taught me that. So that alone would justify my belief that if I push in the brake pedal, it'll slow down my car. But secondly, I'd done it before. I'd done it before over and over and over and over again, pushed in my pedal, it slowed down my car, pushed in my pedal, it slowed down my car. So personal experience, I was taught it by respectable teachers. I know it from personal experience, right? I, I believe it because of personal experience. And finally, the third reason is because I've seen other people do it. So observations of other people. Other people, when they wanna slow down their car, they push in the brake pedal. So I believed that if I pushed in my brake pedal, I would slow down my car, and my belief was justified. But it was wrong, because <laughs> I had a leak in my brake fluid, and the fluid was all over the road between where I was and my house, and it did not slow down my car when I pushed in the brake pedal. So that was a justified belief that was false. Uh, so truth and justification are not not the same thing. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's a great story of that. <laughs> So I've, yeah, yeah. I've actually uh, I've come to the conclusion that for any belief about the external world to actually be rationally justified, God must exist. Uh, because if it were possible, if it were just possible for human experience to be adequately explained apart from the Christian God, then the Christian God wouldn't be necessary to explain human experience. But for Christianity, he is necessary. He's, he's the necessary thing. Nothing can be without him. He is. He is the I am. Uh, he's like the definition of existence. Um, and so <clears throat> uh, since he cannot deny himself, um, as Second Timothy says, um, and since he's the one who created everything, he can't not be the one who created everything. That's, that's who he is. That's who he necessarily is. And so nothing can be without him. And so if it's, if it's genuinely possible to uh, adequately explain human experience apart from the Christian God, then this necessary Christian God isn't necessary, which means the Christian God doesn't exist. Um, but since the Christian God does exist, at least I believe he exists, it must therefore follow that it's not possible for human experience to be explained apart from the Christian God. Uh, this is kind of a entering into presuppositionalism. It's a very exclusive claim um, you've got to have the Christian God in order for reality to make sense. Um, it's it's not just an exclusive claim, but it's a very all-encompassing kind of a presupposition. It covers, like, everything. Yeah, that's a great intro into the next question, which is maybe you could talk a little bit about what, I mean, you've done this a little bit here, but what is presuppo presuppositional apologetics, and why do you fall on this idea? Right, so um, <clears throat> a presupposition is a belief that a person has that they don't generally state. Uh, it's, it's a sort of a silent belief in the back of their head and it influences the way that they think. 
Now, everybody has presuppositions. You can't get rid of them. Uh, every, every situation that you ever walk into, um, you're going to have some preconceived ideas about various different things that will affect how you deal with that situation. And nobody is really completely neutral about anything at all. Uh, we all have preconceived notions, um, ideas of, of, you know, what a particular expression on a person's face indicates, um, ideas of, uh, you know, how a particular word can be defined um, and how it cannot be defined, uh, ideas of, you know, what a, what a stance, uh, the way that a person is standing, what that might indicate, um, all kinds of different ideas, just, you know, things that we pick up as we grow up. And then you walk into a situation and, and you take a wide variety of different presuppositions that you have and they influence the way that you think about that situation. Um, Greg, ba Greg Bonson talked about the fallacy of pretended neutrality. People often pretend like they're neutral, um, particularly with the God question. But in the end, nobody's really neutral. Everybody, everybody already has some presuppositions that are going to influence the way that they think, that they're not going to be able to really necessarily get rid of. Uh, so the question is not do presuppositions exist or do people have them? I mean, for me, that's, uh, of course we do, we all do. Um, the question is, are your presuppositions internally coherent? Do they actually work with one another? Can you identify your presuppositions? Can you explain why you hold to this one if you also hold to this other thing that seems to conflict with it? Um, so generally, it seems to me that, again, if the Christian God is necessary, as he appears to claim he is, <laughs> um, then every worldview that claims he doesn't exist has to contradict itself somehow. Um, and if that's the case, then as the apologist, it's, it's our job to find that contradiction. And it's also our job to point out how Christianity does not contradict itself. Uh, now, that's not the same thing as saying Tim McCabe doesn't contradict himself. Tim McCabe and Christianity are not identical. I make mistakes and, and stuff, and I can be corrected. But in, in the end, the basic premises of Christianity are coherent, and the whole world relies on them being true in some way, shape, or form. Uh, so the presuppositionalist will, um, <clears throat> ideally, he'll do two things. He'll, he'll point out the conflict, the contradiction in, in, the, in his opponent's view, and he'll point out the lack of contradiction in his own view. So there's an offensive argument and also a defensive argument to a good presuppositional apologetic. Um, I don't know, does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, yeah. I think you did a great job explaining it. So my, I have a question for you in this area. So how would you, you there, you hear me? Yeah, yeah. All right, just making sure. I think there's a little uh, freeze delay. I think there's something wrong with my internet. But regardless, I think audio is good. So how would you respond to, let's say, a skeptic who talks about and says, hey, you know, if you start with presuppositions, that's not good logic. You can start with square one. You know, I think it's Descartes who says that he starts with, I think, therefore I am, you know. So you have no uh, presuppositions. Like that's the best uh, epistemology you could say is to start at square one and until something can be demonstrated that it's true it shouldn't be accepted as true. Right. Um, so I would, I would suggest that the only kind of a thing that has no presuppositions is, uh, or the, well, the only kind of created thing that has no presuppositions is the kind of created thing that has no thoughts. Uh, a rock, for example, has no presuppositions. But human beings have presuppositions. We, we come to conclusions, and our conclusions are based on premises, and those premises may be based on prior premises, 
which may be based on prior premises, but eventually you get back to your first premises. And those first premises are the, the, the first things that you believe. And they're not things that have been proven to be true because in order to prove that something is true, you have to have premises. <laughs> These are not conclusions of a proof, nor are they the results of, of studied evidence. These are more things along the lines of the idea that it's possible to study evidence or that, that contradictions are false. These, these kinds of ideas that we have um, when we begin to exist as human beings. And it's not only human beings that, that have these kinds of ideas. I, uh, I have a small farm uh, and we have some, we used to have some goats. Um, and one day I had the privilege of watching some of our goats be born. And uh, it's really cool, you know, they come out and immediately, immediately, somehow or other, they, they, they start walking toward their mom's teats. And then as soon as they get there, they start looking with their noses for their mom's teats and they start then sucking on them. And it's just like, it's like instant. Like they had no opportunity to learn this. Um, how do they even know that they need to drink something? Uh, how do they know how to walk? Uh, and people say, oh, well, it's just instinct. That's, that's a label for it, but it doesn't explain it. They have, they have knowledge to begin with. And we also, as human beings, we have knowledge to begin with. Uh, we have presuppositions. And so one of our presuppositions is that our conclusions are rational. Our conclusions are justified. They're, they're, uh, uh, they have rational justification behind them. But is that conclusion uh, or is that presupposition, is that presupposition compatible with the presupposition, for example, that God doesn't exist? Um, and I would venture to say that it's not. If, if God doesn't exist, then our first principles, our first premises uh, are without reason. And if they're without reason, then our conclusions that are drawn from them are also without reason. Um, so anyway, I, I guess I would, I would respond by saying that we all have presuppositions. And uh, even though I have met, encountered people who vociferously deny that they have any presuppositions at all, um, all that that would mean is that they've never come to any conclusions. Uh, in my mind, that's, that's what that would lead to. So I don't think that, that they would agree that they've never come to conclusions, but that means that they had some, some sort of assumptions that led them to those conclusions. Um, okay, I think you're saying something and I'm not hearing it at all. Am I muted? Are you muted? I'm not muted. Uh-oh. I'm not hearing you at all. I'm sorry. You can hear me okay, though? Okay. Uh, you want me to just uh, talk some more about some of the things that we, we said we were going to cover? Or, okay. <laughs> um, so as a, as a presuppositionalist, uh, I'll give you an example of how it's come in handy for me personally um, in the realm of apologetics. Uh, I was talking with a guy online on, on Twitter, a guy named Stephen Law. Uh, you guys might have heard of him. He's, a, he's an atheist, a British uh, philosopher. He's, he's fairly well known. Um, he's got an argument uh, called the evil, evil God Hypothesis. And the argument basically goes like this. Um, that the classical arguments for the existence of God, things like the cosmological argument and the, the ontological argument and so on and so forth, these, these arguments, if they succeed in what they say they're doing, 
if they actually demonstrate that some kind of God exists, some kind of uncaused first cause or, or whatever it is that they're claiming they prove, they generally don't claim whether that God is good. They generally just claim that he exists. <clears throat> so Stephen Law says that it seems to him just as reasonable to believe that this God, that these arguments supposedly, I can see that by the way, yes, um, <laughs> that this God that these, uh, these arguments supposedly prove, he may be evil just as likely as he's good. And so then he tries to demonstrate in, in his presentation of his argument, he tries to demonstrate how um, you can stand by the evil God hypothesis in spite of a variety of other apparent evidences against it. Uh, and he does this, I think, mostly to mock the way that Christians stand by the good God hypothesis in spite of evidences against it. So you have, from a Christian perspective, one of the, the, the major arguments against our view is the problem of evil, which I, I mentioned earlier. Uh, so if you have the evil God hypothesis, one of the major objections would be the problem of good. Well, why is there so much good in the world if you have this omnipotent, omniscient evil God? Like, why would he allow there to be any good? That might be an, an argument against the evil God hypothesis. Well, Stephen Law simply turns our response on its head and says, well, the evil God simply has some sort of reason for allowing that good in the world, some sort of you know, majestically evil reason. Uh, it's for a greater evil that he allows this lesser good. So Stephen Law then tries to point out that you know, we really have no reason to believe in a good God. Anyway, so I was talking with Stephen Law and I asked him um, a question that to me is, is natural for a presuppositionalist to ask and is not necessarily natural for any other kind of apologist to ask. What do you mean by good and evil? What do you mean by that? So Stephen Law responded by saying, oh, it doesn't matter. Just any definition of good and evil and my hypothesis works. And I was like, well, actually it matters very, very, very much. Um, so I, you know, I'd really like to know, can you give me an example at least of, of, of one idea of good and evil that you think works for your hypothesis? And uh, so he gave me a, a definition of good and evil, which to nobody's surprise uh, was a humanist definition. Basically that, that helping humans and benefiting humans is the best good thing you can do and harming humans, hurting humans, that's the worst evil thing you can do. And I was like, okay, okay, hang on. With this definition of good and evil, the Christian God is evil. It's, it's, there's no question about this. <laughs> the, the Christian God sent this flood. He killed all these people. He annihilates the Amalekites. He's evil. He sends people to hell. Like this, our God is evil. If you go with a humanist definition of good and evil. Um, so there's no good God hypothesis. It's not like it's equally likely. He's just evil. But if God really exists, really if any God exists, not just the Christian God, but any God, any monotheistic, omnipotent, omniscient creator God, if any God like that exists, then humanist moral values are false. Humans are not the end all be all of everything. They're not the pinnacle of existence. God is. And if God is omniscient, he knows that. So he's not gonna be a humanist. And if God who knows everything is not a humanist, then humanism is false. So if God actually exists, humanism is false. And if God actually exists, and if, my view of morality is true, namely that morality is obedience to God. Well, God obeys himself. God does whatever he wants. And it's really silly to suggest that he doesn't. So from that perspective, if my God exists, then of course he's good. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost ridiculous to suggest that God gives himself a command and then refuses to obey it. Um, 
it's not to say that that's impossible. It just seems a little silly. Like, why wouldn't he just do what he wants instead of telling himself to do something and then telling himself no and then doing something else? Like, so he's not going to be evil because he's not going to disobey himself. Uh, so he's going to be good. So anyway, you know, when you define the words in a humanist way, then you wind up with a humanist conclusion. But when you define the words in a Christian way, you wind up with a Christian conclusion. And it, it all just is based on your presuppositions. Stephen Law had a presupposition of what it meant to be good and evil, and I had a different one. And um, his assumption was that everybody agreed with him, including Christians. But that was not the case. That was not the case at all. Uh, and I don't think that any God could possibly agree with his definition of good and evil. Um, yeah, definitely. Oh, I can hear you now. <laughs> you got me? All right. I think there's a mic issue here. Um, should be good now. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I was, I was following along the whole time. I mean, do you have anything else you want to add? I hope I didn't cut you off. I don't, I don't want to cut you off there. No, no, that's that's great. That's all. Sweet. So let me try one thing right here and, and just let me know if you can. Okay, we'll just go with this. It should be fine. Uh, my next question for you is how would you respond to an atheist or a skeptic that would say, hey, as an atheist, I lack a belief. I don't, I'm not saying there is no God. I just lack a belief in the gods, the gods that have been presented. So I, I won't become a Christian unless you can prove that God exists and prove that Jesus actually resurrected from the dead. Yeah, boy, that's that's quite a challenge. Prove that Jesus yeah. resurrected from the dead. Um, so I don't know that I personally can prove that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Um, I can provide evidence for that. <clears throat> and to me, the evidence is very convincing. Uh, and I believe that it could be proven. Uh, I just am not uh, aware of how to do so. Um, the reason that I believe it could be proven is because I, I believe that the Christian God is a necessary precondition for reality to be the way that it is. So there must be some way of proving it. Uh, but I don't, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily privy to how to do that. Um, yeah, definitely. But I think there is good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, I feel like I can prove the existence of God. Um, I realize that that's kind of a strong claim, and a lot of apologists would not go that far as to say that they can prove that God exists. In fact, a lot of Christians would say it's impossible to prove that God exists, because if you could prove that God exists, nobody would need to have faith. Uh, but I don't think that, that that logic quite makes sense. Um, for example, I think that Satan knows that God exists, but Satan does not have faith. So mm -hmm. hypothetically, Satan could prove to an atheist that God exists and convince the atheist to not have faith. Uh, I don't think that having faith and knowing the, that God exists are quite the same thing. And I think my testimony also demonstrates that I believed in God in the sense that I believe that he existed, but I didn't have any trust or faith in him. I had no commitment to him. So I think the kind of faith that the Bible says that we need to have is, is, is more trust and commitment. Uh, obviously that involves mental assent but a proof would only demonstrate uh, the truth value of the proposition. It would not actually give you faith per se. Anyway, so yeah, so I think that the existence of God can be proven. And um, what I mean by that is that I think that there is a way to develop a logical argument, a, a, a syllogism, if you will, that if God does not exist, uh, the syllogism is becomes complete and total nonsense. Um, and Actually, all syllogisms do. Um, anyway, the way that I would that I would phrase the syllogism, and this is sort of the short version of my argument from reason for the existence of God. Uh, premise one: If premises 
begin to exist without reason, then conclusions drawn from them are also without reason. Premise two, if there is no God, all initial human premises about the external world begin to exist without reason. Therefore, if there is no God, all human conclusions about the external world are also without reason. Um, I'll go over that again in a minute. But basically, uh, if you think about any conclusion, you come to some conclusion, you might say that this conclusion is justified. Uh, there's, there's good reason for believing this conclusion. So, well, how is it justified? Well, it's justified by these premises. These premises, these premises that lead to this conclusion. Okay, well, how did you come to the conclusion of these premises? Oh, well, these premises that led to them. Okay, well, how'd you get these? Well, these premises, which came from these premises, which came from these premises, and so on and so forth back. But eventually you get to the point where you reach your first premises, the ideas that you had when you began to exist, your first beliefs. And even if you don't necessarily know what those were, that, that's not really important. The, the point is, is that you had some. You had some first beliefs. Whatever they were, you had some first beliefs. If you haven't had first beliefs, either you didn't begin to exist or you have no beliefs. Uh, you did begin to exist and you do have beliefs, so you must have had some first beliefs. So the question is, how are those justified? Because they can't be conclusions. They can't be conclusions from prior beliefs. They're first beliefs. There's nothing prior, for you at least, not inside of your head. So what does it take for those first premises to be rationally justified? Um, and it seems to me that if they are rationally justified, then there's got to be reason behind them. And if they're your first premises, then your reason is not behind them. So it's got to be somebody else's reason that's behind them. Well, whose reason could be behind your first premises? Gee, <laughs> that would leave basically one answer, and the answer is God, some kind of rational God, uh, whoever it is that gave you those first premises and also caused them to be true, that would be the one whose reason could justify your belief in those first premises, your, your insistence on those first premises. Um, uh, one way of looking at this is a simple way, make it simplified here. Um, if there is no God, there is no reason for anything, including your own conclusions. Or another way of saying it is, if there is no God, there, everything is an accident, including your own beliefs. <clears throat> Most atheists will agree that if there is no God, there is no reason for anything, at least the ones that I've met will agree with that. Uh, but they refuse to follow through with it and say that that, that would include their own beliefs, that would include their own conclusions. Um, and I think that they think that I'm actually equivocating on the word reason, but I'm not. They may misunderstand my initial uh, statement to mean some other kind of reason. But ultimately what I mean is, you know, how do you justify your first premises? And the answer is you can't. You can't. But if somebody rational can justify them and it isn't you, <laughs> God is really the only, the only solution to that, uh, that question. Um, so yeah. that would be, in my mind, that proves that God exists. Um, it proves that a rational God exists. It proves that a, a cause of the external world exists. Uh, and it proves that a cause of your own beliefs exists. Um, it has to be rational or, or it can't rationally justify anything. So whereas like the cosmological argument, at, at best, it proves that something caused everything. Uh, doesn't necessarily say what that something is like, except that it, it appears to be timeless, spaceless, and powerful. Um, the argument from reason pretty clearly says it has to be rational. Uh, and as soon as you get reason in there, you, you've, got, you've got God. 
you've got a personal entity that's behind your thoughts, everybody's thoughts, and the things that we think about. Not just our thoughts, but also the things that we think about. There's a personal, rational entity behind all of that stuff. I don't know if that was totally clear or not. Um, no, I think I was kind of tracking with you here. I mean, that's the first time I've heard of that uh, principle, but it's really interesting. I really, it's a great uh, argument you have there. Yeah, I think it made a lot of sense. I mean, yeah. Okay, well, cool. Yeah, definitely. So I want to transition here to, uh, I have one more question here. Well, I have two more. My, one of my questions here, I've noticed I was looking at your website. You have a lot of articles recently talking about why Christianity is the only way. Because, I mean, we see a lot of pluralism now along with society. Today. Like, hey, find whatever beliefs are best for you, you know, things like that. Like, oh, maybe Christianity doesn't really contradict other religions, you know. Any religion is fine. They all lead to God. So why do you believe as a Christian that Christianity is the only way to God? So for me personally, um, when I realized I was a sinner, I also realized I was in need of a savior. I was the problem, I was not the solution. And if I was going to be right with God, the God that I believed created me, the God that I was quite confident created me, the God that I now believe uh, there's proof for, um, really the only game, game in town was Jesus. Jesus was, was the way, he was the way, the only way, the only, the only real offer for me that made any sense. Uh, I couldn't fix the problem of myself. Um, I was the problem of myself. Somebody else had to fix it, and that somebody else has to be powerful enough to do it and has to uh, have done it or, or, or be going to do it. Um, anyway, for me, just the recognition that I needed a savior uh, pointed me to Christ immediately. But um, the basic facts of the life of Christ, at least some of them, uh, aren't really in serious dispute. Like for example, he lived, he did some amazing things that, that people at the time thought were amazing. Uh, he claimed he had the power to forgive sins. He claimed to be equal with God. And he was crucified for that. That's the reason that, that he was executed. Um, he died, he was buried, uh, but a few days later, his tomb was found empty. And following this, numerous individuals had experiences in which they encountered him alive. Now, what best explains this is, is kind of the question. And various different folks have tried to explain this in various different ways. <clears throat> but uh, those basic facts aren't, aren't really in a whole lot of dispute among serious historians, if I understand correctly. I'm, I'm not an expert in that field. Uh, but what would cause somebody like Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, to stop hating Christians and persecuting Christians, desiring their death and desiring to throw them in prison, what would what would cause him to stop that and become a Christian? And it was like overnight, just bam, and he's totally different. By his own testimony, he claims he saw the risen Christ. So are you gonna dispute that? Or are you gonna say, oh, you didn't really, you're, you're making it all up. Like what would convince somebody to do that? <clears throat> if, if my understanding of history is correct, later on, Paul himself had his head chopped off for claiming Christ. So he was trying to kill people for claiming Christ. Then he starts claiming Christ and gets killed for it. He knew what was coming to him. Uh, he didn't do this for some sort of position of, of, of power or money. He did it knowing he was probably going to be executed. <clears throat> He's probably going to be executed by someone just like him. Um, so it doesn't seem as though somebody like Paul of Tarsus could have made it up. Uh, and then you also have a variety of other people. I mean, you have, you have obviously the, the, the committed faithfuls like, like Peter and John, but then you also have people like James and Jude, the brother of 
brothers of Christ, uh, according to the book of John in chapter seven, verse five, they didn't really have a very high opinion of Jesus. But then after he dies and after he supposedly rises from the dead, suddenly they became leaders leaders in, in the early church. They joined his movement. They started calling him God. I mean, what would it take to convince you that your brother is God? Like seriously. <clears throat> Especially when everybody knows that you didn't believe it while he was alive. Uh, well, they said that what convinced them was they, they saw him alive, like after he died. So you got these, these weird claims. What do you do with these claims? And um, not only were these people making these bizarre claims and being persecuted for them and sometimes executed for them, uh, but in addition to that, you've got to deal with what this Jesus guy said while he was alive and what he did while he was alive. Um, so, for example, he claimed before he died, he claimed that his resurrection, he was going to rise from the dead and that his resurrection would be a sign to the people around him that he was who he claimed to be and that he had the power on earth to forgive sins. So then he dies and rises from the dead. And it's like, okay, wait a second. He said this was going to be a sign that he could forgive sins. And he said that he was willing to forgive sins if you trust him. So, you know, what do you do with that? And, and C.S. Lewis has a good... Uh, had a good argument um, to think about, a good thing to think about with respect to the person of Jesus. When you look at what he said and you look at what he did and you look at what's recorded about him, you kind of really only have three options. You can't, you can't say, oh, he was a great moral teacher. Uh, it, th he doesn't really leave that open. Um, mm -hmm. You basically have the three options of either he's a liar, in which case you've got to explain this whole resurrection thing that appears to have happened, um, and you've also got to explain why a liar would say some of the things that Jesus said, uh, or he's a lunatic. That's that's also another possibility, according to C.S. Lewis. Um, but again, how do you explain the resurrection? I mean, everybody would have to be a lunatic. All of his followers would have had to have been insane or, or something like that, and insane in the same way, because they all saw the same kinds of resurrected appearances and all went to their deaths, or not all of them went to their deaths, but many of them went to their deaths, uh, defending their claims that they saw this. So, you know, there's the liar, there's the lunatic, or there's Lord, and that's kind of what you're left with. Uh, when you take a look at some of the things that he said, not only did he claim to be able to forgive sins, not only did he claim that he would rise from the dead, but he also told people that they should love their enemies. And to me, it's like, okay, <laughs> what did you just say? <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> first of all, that statement is so obviously true, and yet nobody says that, nobody teaches that, nobody lives that way. So what kind of a person would say something that nobody's going to say that everybody believes is right? What kind of a person is going to hold themselves up as a role model to follow in this way that nobody, nobody lives like that? That's so counter to the way that humans want to be, and that's how Jesus was. I mean, not only did he love his enemies, he died for his enemies. That's what he claimed he did. That's what his followers claimed that he did. Um, so anyway, this, this particular individual... Jesus of Nazareth uh, was something amazing, something outstanding, something incredible. And that, that's exactly what I as a sinner needed. So, you know, how, how would I prove that Jesus is who he said he was? I, I don't know that I can, but I can look at the historical evidence and it certainly seems like he was. So then how do we get to this exclusivity? You know, why not, why not follow Buddha? I mean, so let's say that Jesus really was who he said he was, that he really was the son of God and really died for our sins. Why can't we you know, follow Muhammad. Why can't we, uh, you know, wouldn't Jesus love me 
even if I'm a Muslim? Wouldn't Jesus love me even if I'm an atheist? I mean, I just haven't been, as an atheist, pretend like I'm an atheist. I just haven't been convinced that God exists. Uh, doesn't Jesus love me too? Won't he send me to heaven too? Apparently, Jesus himself doesn't think that that's the way things should work. Um, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you might say, okay, okay, but we can all still go to the Father. It's just Jesus who gets us there. We don't necessarily have to have faith in him, you might say. But in, in elsewhere in John, in, in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, he who believes in me is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus claims if you don't believe in him, you got some major, major problems. And he claims that he is the only way to the Father. So the claims of exclusivity come from Jesus himself. And if Jesus actually did rise from the dead to demonstrate that he was who he said he was and that he could do what he said he could do, then exclusivity is not just a claim, it's a fact. Anyway, yeah. that's that's how I've come to those conclusions. Yeah, that's a great yeah, that's a great summary of why Jesus is the only way. It's clear in the scriptures and it's clear to tell. Um, my final question for you here is you talked a little bit about justification by will. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, about what that is and how that works being justified by will. Sure, yeah. Um, so the question of how our first premises are justified, uh, how does that work exactly? There, lots of philosophers have dealt with that question, and uh, I am not an expert in that in that arena, but I've done a lot of study in my free time. <laughs> and it seems to me that there's a lot of disagreement there. You've got various different camps um, that claim that justification works in various different ways, and they all disagree with one another. And even within a camp, often there's a lot of disagreement of how justification works. Um, but it seems to me that, that probably everybody agrees on some particular things that involve the will. For example, uh, I assume you've heard of Mark Twain. Heard of Mark Twain? Yes, of okay, course, I took English class for forever. <laughs> <laughs> so he had a character in one of his books named Injun Joe. And if I was to walk up to Mark Twain, the author, and say to Mark Twain, and he's dead now, obviously, but he died like 100 years ago, but assume that, he was, uh, I'm, that we're contemporaries and I can walk up to him and talk to him. And I said to Mark Twain, so Mark, you know, I've read your book and I, I read about Injun Joe, but I, just, I was just really wondering, what color are Injun Joe's eyes? And Mark Twain, imagine that he just said to me, blue, they're blue, his eyes are blue. What kind of a response would I then have to Mark Twain's assertion, his claim that Injun Joe's eyes are blue? Like, would I say, well, gee, Mark Twain, why do you believe that? I probably would not say that because he's the author. He's the creator of Injun Joe. He wants Injun Joe's eyes to be blue, so guess what? Injun Joe's eyes are blue. That's really all it takes is for his will to make it true, and then his will justifies his claim that it's true if he's the creator. And in this case, Mark Twain is the creator of Injun Joe. So his will suffices to be the final, ultimate, full, and complete justification for his claim that Injun Joe's eyes are blue. You need look no further. Mark Twain wants them to be blue. They're blue. Um, now, on the flip side of that, just imagine if, uh, let's say, you walked up to me and you said, Tim, 
I, I can't quite tell from the video footage, what color are George Bush's eyes? And, and I said, well, Zach, uh, they're blue. You might say, why do you think they're blue? Now just imagine if I said, well, because I, I want them to be. <laughs> so Mark Twain can make that statement about Injun Joe's eyes, but I cannot make that statement about George Bush's eyes and actually have it be a rational justification for my claim. My will does not justify my claim that George Bush's eyes are blue. But it, Mark Twain's will does justify his claim that Injun Joe's eyes are blue because Mark Twain is the creator of Injun Joe. I'm not the creator of George Bush. Uh, so my will is insufficient to justify my beliefs about George Bush. And my will is insufficient to justify my beliefs about the world around me. But God is the creator of the world around me. His will is sufficient to justify his beliefs about the world around me because he made it. He's like Mark Twain and I'm like Injun Joe. Um, so God's claims are justified by God's will, just like Mark Twain's claims about Engine Joe are justified by Mark Twain's will. So, but somebody might say, well, um, you're really just moving the problem one step back. Uh, what justifies God's beliefs? Does God have a rational creator? And here I would, I would point to, uh, Mark Twain again, and I would say, that um, since God is the creator, he doesn't need a creator uh, mm -hmm. to justify his claims about his creation. Just like Mark Twain doesn't need anything beyond his own will to justify his claims about his creation, um, God doesn't need anything beyond his own will to justify his claims about his creation. So another question that somebody might ask is, how does that justify my first premises? Like I'm, I'm one of these created things, I'm not God. So, okay, God's claims about God's creation, those are justified, sure, because he's the creator. What about my claims about God's creation? Can those be justified? And that's really the whole, the whole concept here um, is uh, how are our first premises justified? That's, that's what this, this topic is really about. And here I would, I would talk about a calculator. Um, you can look at a calculator, you can ask a calculator a question like, like what is 10 times 10? And the calculator will say it's 100. Uh, you can look at a magic eight ball and you can ask a magic eight ball the same question, what's 10 times 10? And the magic eight ball will say no, <laughs> or it'll say something else. Uh, they're both making claims. The calculator and the magic eight ball are both making claims, but one of them is making justified claims, rational claims. The calculator is making rationally justified claims. Now this is really interesting because the calculator isn't a creator, but we would all agree that its claims are rationally justified. So how are its claims rationally justified? Well, its claims are rationally justified because its creator wanted its claims to match his thoughts. The creator wanted the calculator to think his thoughts after him. The creator of the magic eight ball was not wanting the magic eight ball to think like he did. He was wanting the magic eight ball to do crazy things and think insanely, irrationally. But the creator of the calculator wanted the calculator to think like he did. And so he basically taught it how he programmed it so that it would have certain presuppositions that it would use to come to conclusions that are rationally justified. Likewise, just as a calculator can make rationally justified claims based on the will of its creator, we also can make rationally justified claims based on the will of our creator. So in the end, um, the rational justification can transfer, just like in the case of a calculator, it can transfer from God to us. And just like in the case of Mark Twain, it doesn't need to go past God because he's the creator. His will justifies his beliefs and his will justifies 
our beliefs. Yeah, that's a great, it's a beautiful wrap up. <laughs> Good job. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, that's a really, I'm trying not to sound dumb here, <laughs> but I mean, you're very smart. I really appreciate everything you brought today. I really actually learned a lot because I wasn't actually super familiar with the idea of presuppositional apologetics. I mean, I knew what it was, but I didn't know a lot of the why and the how and, you know, things like that behind it. So I really appreciate you explaining that to not just me, but everyone listening to him. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. So, it's, yeah, I want to, sorry, you go. I don't want to interrupt I, you. It's, it's, it's been, it's been really fun being on your show and uh, on your, on your channel. I appreciate it. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, I love it. I'm glad that you came on. I'd encourage everyone to check out Tim's stuff. I have a link to his blog that he updates regularly in his Twitter account if you want to follow him or see how he's doing or anything like that. And as far as for us, our links to our social medias, as always, are in the description. You can support us financially on Patreon. We're trying to reach $200 a month in funding, which would be huge for us. So you can consider doing that. And all of our other stuff is there. You can vote for Tim in the March Madness apologist qualifiers the link to that is in the description and once again tim i just want to say thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate it thank you zach it's been a pleasure all right thank you everyone have a great night